Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Brian uh, Falchuk, who is uh, founder and managing partner of Insurance Evolution Partners. Um, but as I think we'll find out, um, he's a lot more than that as well. Published author, one of the futurists, looking at kind of the future of insure tech, looking at the current state of insure tech, many, many things. And uh, we always enjoy his content over at the Leadership Insurance Podcast. So we'd, you know, I, we throw out, we always say that we're very lucky, but today I do feel very lucky. So Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully I don't like steal all your luck and trash it. I've got a lot to live up to now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, I, I feel a bit mean that I've given you that much of a hype. <laughs> no pressure. That's a difficult place to start. But yeah. um, Brian, before we dive in, we obviously, we, we know who you are, we follow your content, but just in case the, the folks that are listening, you know, aren't aware, um, how would you put yourself in what, what you do and particularly what you do at Insurance Evolution Partners or, or yeah. all the other things that you get up to? Yeah, as well? um, yeah it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to clarify, but um, I always say like I'm an insurance industry veteran. I've been around PNC for like 20 something years. Um, and through that, I've spent time at carriers, consulting, insure techs, um, and it, it's given me a really, I think, somewhat unique, but interested, more more so perhaps an interesting, but interested perspective on where the industry is and where it could go. I like solving problems and I like opportunity. And so uh, a few years back, um, I set up Insurance Evolution Partners to try to help the industry engage in the possibility of change, whether that's some carriers I work with or insure techs and kind of helping them navigate a bit of um, bring their solutions into the industry and succeeding. Uh, to help drive that change. And, and through that, I've been putting out a bunch of different thought leadership content. You mentioned I'm an author, so I've got a, a book series called The Future of Insurance, a podcast series called The Future of Insurance, everything basically, because I can't come up with other names uh, <laughs> called The Future of Insurance. But it's really, I just put all this stuff out there to give people something to engage in to say, you know, is there something in my context we could do differently? And maybe I can take a bit of inspiration from someone else who's done that. So, uh, I, you know, just like getting the stories of different players at different parts of the industry who are overcoming all the barriers we all talk about every day to try to innovate and evolve. Awesome. Awesome. And, and that's what I'm looking forward to having this conversation, because I think, you know, we, we talked a little bit just before we came on, and, and usually we're talking about, you know, founders that have got a discrete solution. So it's really nice to have kind of a macro look at the industry uh yeah. and and particularly at the time you know we're recording this in in uh in the later stage of 2022 there's been a lot that's been happening um and obviously there's a lot that's going to happen as well next year so um we'll probably make a bunch of predictions that won't happen so that i'm looking forward to that uh, <laughs> the of this. so um i wanted to look back at the year um particularly what we've seen sort of a trends perspective so i mean one the, the trend that we've kind of acknowledged on a macro level um from the finpro team is that sort of the focus has been on underserved underinsured markets mm. um and the kind of opportunities that lie with kind of better customer uh needs um do you, do you i mean do you see the same kind of macro trend is that is that what you've been kind of focusing on um or what's what's been your overriding 2022 takeaway yeah well so interestingly i think i mean i think it's something I would agree with that I probably didn't even realize. Um, you know, if I'm honest, I think looking back, a lot of the earlier insure tech activities were in, um, by and large, were in sort of broad brush spaces where someone, 
you know, looked at insurance, thought it was stupid or the players were stupid or lazy or slow or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can do better and, and maybe be a bit cheeky about it in the marketing and take advantage of that um, to different degrees of success. There's some players who really are just hype and there's others who have a lot of hype, but actually there's substance behind it and their results play out. Um, but on the investing side, there was also a lot of hubris and hype. And so lots of things got funded that maybe shouldn't have um, big TAMs, you know, big potential upside, but not necessarily able to seize on that. In this year where investing has been a lot tougher, or it's been tougher to get investment dollars, I think that's, while it's been hard, it's also been a good thing because it's forced a rationalization where underlying economics matter, um, but also having a genuine reason for being matters. And so I think, you know, to your point, that's why we get to see some more maybe you can call them niche kind of solutions or at least more specific, like there's a reason why this exists or needs to exist rather than it's doing the same thing that someone else has been doing for hundreds of years, but their slate was clean. So they're not starting with legacy tech. Like that's not actually to me a material advantage because the day you start your tech starts to, you know, your slate's no longer clean. Um, And so someone else could just come along a year later and be like, well, we've got an even cleaner slate. So now we're better. Mm -hmm. Um, so when when you have folks who are trying to serve underserved markets or create solutions where there wasn't one before, yet there was a need, um, you know, someone is suffering and we actually have a mechanism to speak to that, or there's a gap in the customer experience or customer journey or how agents or brokers can do their work, and no one's really been solving for that. I think you've seen people looking for genuine reasons for being, and the same thing on the buyer side. Um, and the investor side, where just being new tech, that's not enough to get funding or buyers anymore. Mm. Um, so I think it it sort of maybe comes from that rationalization. Um, and frankly, it's nice to see because we need that. And you're solving genuine problems. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I think it's so true. It was really interesting, the earlier, very big, very large insure techs. And, and can, I wrote an article back the other day that said, yeah, the second you start, as you said, you, you're, get, you're getting tech debt. Yeah. But the other point I kind of wanted to make on the tech debt conversation and, and legacy tech, as, as people kind of want to talk about, is that I think if you come from tech and come into insurance, you can overplay the impact of that tech on things like profitability, on yeah. things like actually the customer experience, because... A lot of the tech that we're aware of being bad, uh, we're aware because we're industry people. We're not aware as a customer, not necessarily. You can change the front end relatively quickly. What we're usually talking about is the mechanics in the back end. You know, uh, how can we access our data? Are we recording the right data? But as a customer, I don't care. Like, I I don't really, if your house is not in order, a, a, a big carrier, as long as you can pay my claim, I don't really care. Um, So I think sometimes some of the emphasis was so heavily on, I know a lot of it was a customer experience, but I I felt like customer experience was something that you can probably change quicker if you're a B2C player in insurance than you can anything to do with the back end. And there was a slight overplaying of that hand and saying, whereas what they weren't taking into account, which was we've seen, they might have not been great at tech, but they're really good at managing risk. (laughs) That's why they've been around for 200 years, 300 years. Yeah. And that's the hard bit. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I, I talked about that actually is the opening salvo in my first book, um, which was looking at all legacy players who had done something interesting and, and, uh, kind of innovative because by and large, and it's not to say they've always been stellar underwriters or haven't had hard times, you know, a lot of them going through that right now. Um, 
but they have gotten the hard parts right. And the easy bits, they've not gotten as right. And that's more on the CX and and the digital journey kind of things that have become much more front and center, but they're learning and they're getting better. And actually those are far, when I call them easy, it's not that they're easy, but they're much easier to make progress on. And they're easier to get right because we have a lot of answers for them today. Ultimately, you could say, well, we have answers for underwriting because we've been doing it forever. Well, if that was the case, we wouldn't have some who lose money and some who make money. Um, We've already learned the lesson that accuracy and rating is unbelievably powerful, and that's the path to profitability, yet plenty of folks struggle with that. Um, And we still seem to have some players out there, newer players in particular, who think that selling a dollar or a euro or a pound or a yen or whatever of coverage for 20 cents is somehow some brilliant new idea. No, it's still a wild money loser, no matter how cool your brand looks, how great your tech is, yeah. that is not sustainable. And unlike tech and B2C, you know, retail kind of things, scale makes you worse, not better. So that yeah. you don't outgrow bad underwriting to, I mean, look to an extent, cause your, your books start smoothing. And like, there are things that small books just inherently are problematic because one loss can blow the whole thing up. But if you're fundamentally bad underwriters, getting bigger just makes you fundamentally a worse underwriter. So for yeah. a lot of them, it's like, well, it's just because just we're growing. No, that's actually not the problem. You are fundamentally broken as an insurer, but let's not swear them off because there's lots to learn from them. And I think that's actually something where the industry needs to do better is we have hubris on both sides. Hubris yeah. from the insure text for, oh, these dinosaurs, they don't know what they're doing. Well, they do know some things are doing, you best learn from them on those things and do better on the other things. And the dinosaurs, you know, the legacy folks, which I count myself in that bucket, we also can learn from these insure techs or these newer players, whether we think they're viable or not. Surely there are things that really we should be learning from, even just the mentality of being willing to try things and fail and learn. And um, a lot of us need to get more comfortable with that. So I think ultimately... The biggest shift I would like to see, and I know you didn't ask me this, but it's a, it, it's a mentality shift. And I think like we've got examples on both sides that speak to that, whether it's the hard stuff or the, the easy stuff. Mm. I think I've seen that play out in, and, and I'd be interested to get your take on this. So, you know, we specialize in providing uh, senior hires into earlier stage businesses. So we're typically working through seed throughout series B. Um the complexion and the makeup of the teams that I'm working with now, as opposed to three years ago, three years ago, it would be some tech entrepreneur coming into insurance and, you know, we might be hiring them their first insurance hire, but they're already up and running. They've already structurally up and running. Uh, The teams I'm working with now tend to be, there's an insurance founding partner and then there's a tech founding partner and they've come together to go, Right, we're going to solve a, a problem in the market, or there are there are more insurance heavy knowledge, and they're acknowledging a problem, and then they're hiring in tech talent. Yes. So the ch- yeah. the change has been subtle but significant. Is is that something I, I totally agree with you? Um, I, and I I think I think it's it's not that subtle because if you're talking about a founding team of two to four people, yeah. if none of them versus one or two of them has an insurance background, that's actually quite profound. Mm. Um, and I think. I think you've seen a few where it's pure insurance folks and that's okay. But my concern there is, are you, you know, has, has your horizon been open enough? Are you willing to be as tough on 
the things we've always done and um, think in totally new ways or structuring your thoughts very differently. So I, what I love to see is the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to think about, you know, how are they kind of coming together symbiotically or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is there actually a power play where one side is winning out more than the other? So I, I agree with you. I have seen a shift. And then I look deeper within that. And as I'm sure you do too, and you're thinking of placing someone or not is how are they going to work together and challenge each other um, and support each other? And, you know, I talked to some VCs who are like, we really look at the dynamics of the leadership team. And, you know, one of the VCs who told me that was bringing up a particular startup as an example of how great it can be. And I was like, well, I've actually done quite a bit of work with that startup. And I know the leadership team is three old friends who've worked together forever. They've done other startups together and they're always on the same page. Um, And when they disagree, they're disagreeing in unison. You know, they're all disagreeing with something they did. Mm -hmm. There isn't actually that healthy tension because they've almost gotten too comfortable with each other. Mm -hmm. So um, I I think you need to look for that and make sure it's survivable tension, Mm -hmm. but tension is valuable. It's invaluable. Um, Whether it's different backgrounds, different styles, different, you know, focus areas. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think you're seeing more of that these days than you did with the sort of gen one insure techs in the the mid to late 20 teens as the word insure tech was starting to come to be. Yeah, yeah, as we were still trying to debate how to spell it. Does um, it have an E or not? I like it, so I don't I don't put the E in there, but you know, <laughs> Caribou Honig disagrees with me, so that's his that's his prerogative. Yeah, I know. Um that always throws me out with the ITC. Um, but yeah. uh, but no, I don't I don't put the E in there either. But I think that's um you and I sort of uh sort of exchanged on something I put up on, on LinkedIn the other day, which is about mentors, which is the same kind of type of thinking, was that yeah. I think now if you're an insurance professional and you've got a mentor and you're looking to what your future career should look like, I worry if your mentor is a industry insurance veteran and yeah. that's and that's your only reference point. Um, now, obviously, it was me getting a bit bent out of shape because I was headhunting someone and they said no. <laughs> but I just it was it just it, it, it did make me think I mean, if you're if you're talking to some industry veteran senior underwriter and and we've got an underwriting proposition which looks a bit unusual i think if that's our only reference point you're always going to turn it down that doesn't mean that's not the right decision but there's no challenge in thought process yeah Yeah. and it's the same for founding teams if you don't have and if they don't have equal weighting like you say if you if you're a tech driven the tech driven uh teams i saw and then they would bring that insurance person in that insurance person is not on an equal footing. So they're yeah, not yeah. there to kind of give feedback. So, I mean, but I mean, the makeup of teams is essential in the success of startups anyway. Yeah. So yeah. healthy tension, I think is a really lovely way of putting it. Um, yeah. And at the board level as well, and the advisory board, I mean, I think the, the word mentor, like let's broaden that out to all the different contexts where we get to have mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's just as dangerous for a board to have a, com- for a board to be complacent as it is for them to be adversarial. You you can't survive if your board is just fighting everything and making it really difficult. You have to ask yourself, why? Is it the board or is it you? Um, mm-hmm. Could be either side. But equally, you're also going to fail if your board is just rubber stamping everything. Um, I think you need a healthy tension and you need a good relationship, whether it's your advisory board or your board board or your mentor, your sort of career board, if you will, or just in life, you know, your your friendships, your relationships, your life board um 
we need to find people who think like us and don't think like us and have our context and don't have our context context and and sort of ask around yeah yeah that's a yeah i i, I was thinking about the friendship thing uh that came up in conversa- conversation yeah. today um I, I was out with a friend last night and he basically disagreed with me on something that i'd done in my personal life and um that's why he's a good friend of mine yeah, yeah, he yeah right he exactly showing that mirror to me and everyone else hadn't picked it up and they said he was like i oh, know i don't think you did the right thing here and he went yeah okay. you know it was it was it was it was interesting and healthy yeah um, i want to i want to talk to you about something that a previous guest had said uh and i think i think this is interesting because i saw this the piece you did about customer experience and I, I think this will probably play into that um we had a guest on previously um I want to say it's Herman Friend. I'm not sure, but I'll check and I'll put it back in the notes. Um, but they said that the broker is the only true customer of the insurance industry. Were they in the UK? No, they were they were in Europe. Um, okay. and, they, and they felt that the they felt the insurance industry was completely built around the broker. Do you think that's true? Um, I think in some markets, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, you like having having worked at a, a global carrier like when i was at hiscox um i was i was squarely in the u.s business then but you know my peers uh running claims for the european continent it, i mean it's almost a foolish term to say like head of european claims because every market is so different and it does boil down largely to the distribution prevalence mm-hmm. um, you know where some markets are really heavily broker driven and some markets have really accepted bank assurance or direct sales or what have you and you see that pervasive in what the customer experience is about what people's expectations are what sort of staffing we would need to have to support them through the claim um and so you know I'm trying to think if it was like German the German market was very broker driven if I'm remembering right and apologies to any German listeners who are like no that's not correct at all but I think <laughs> it is um you really must be thinking about how you work with the brokers through those claims or, or any other part of the process. And then, and I'm probably going to get one of these examples wrong, but I think it was Spain was more open to direct sales. And so you needed to think about your, you know, your, your sort of D to C offering and support capabilities. Um, you like the UK, there's a very strong agent broker community and there's a very strong direct, like direct line wouldn't exist if there was no direct sales and bank assurance. And I mean, Tesco selling insurance. I can't imagine a supermarket chain in the U S selling insurance um, and, and lots of other non-food things. Um, I think it, it is a, a local market question. Um, obviously there's some markets that are similar, but then you have to ask yourself, how much is this, the right answer and how much is is this a sort of defense of the past answer so that to to add some color to that um you know in the us we've got in personal lines and 40 something percent are still agent sold but in commercial lines quite a bit more and i was doing some work for a small regional carrier in in new york state that's agent distributed and this is early days of lockdowns where like you know you couldn't have two human beings that didn't live together already in the same building at the same time basically and so they were they had very old tech did a lot of things through checks to uh to pay insureds in claims and the reason was the agents really insisted on getting a paper check driving out to the insured and delivering it because they wanted to be the savior um they wanted to be the hero for the insured and frankly they didn't want the insurance company getting any of that credit because they were afraid of disintermediation so 
they held really firm on that, which meant in COVID, you had the claim adjuster who had to figure out how much to pay. So they're in the office because their systems didn't work remotely. Um, and then they'd all have to be out of the office one day for the check processing people in finance to come in to process those payments. So however long the claim needs to, to come to a determination, then add at least one day uh, mm -hmm. for that check, the check producer. But then the head of claims has to sign every single payment. There was wow. no minimum threshold, which is, you know, that's something that could be fixed. So that adds another day. And then someone else in the mailroom has to actually mail the check out to the agent and the mail's running, you know, the post is running slow. So like now we're talking five to eight days, not business, but days mm -hmm. that have elapsed since we figured out we have to pay 10 grand to this person yeah. um, to then go to the agent. The agent has to drive out to see the insured who those days may not have wanted the agent coming to see them mm. um, to give them the money. What's that two weeks maybe since the determination was made, let alone when the actual loss occurred, that business may be out of business by now. Yeah, um, And that's very much a case of very strong distribution relationship and paradigm there in that part of the market. That's completely failing to realize the impact on the customer. Mm. And, and that is a case of the agents, the, uh, the industry's built around, that distribution decision. And I think it's a bit like the music industry in the early days or the publishing industry fighting against Amazon where consumers have clearly said they want something different. And because that that something different feels dangerous to us, we're going to make that impossible and we're going to make them suffer, but at least we get to hold on to what we have. That never works out in the long term. Mm -hmm. um, forcing people to have a bad experience because you want to keep things the way you have things might work today, might work for a few more days, but ultimately people are going to start pirating music and Apple and Spotify will own everything, um, which is exactly what the music industry was afraid of. You know, Amazon will rise to basically controlling book distribution, which they kind of do. Certainly yeah. book sales as an author, I can tell you, like it's basically Amazon or nowhere else. Yeah. Um, these are all the things that those traditional folks said, we never want to see that. So we're going to lock in and make it impossible that doesn't work out ultimately. So mm -hmm. even if that's how the market is, those players, that e those agents should be thinking, well, how can I stay relevant and important and valuable, but not because I've made it so difficult for them to do anything else. Yeah. Don't, don't make your customers hate you in the process of defending your existence. Mm -hmm. Find another way. Um, and, and I think that's the challenge we need to give ourselves. Doesn't mean distribution changes or CX changes per se, but we do need to be more open to rethinking that. Mm. I, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting misnomers for people discussing, particularly the outside looking in, the insurance industry, particularly carriers. I think, I, I think look at carriers and brokers slightly differently. I think, I think brokers I've seen much more resistance because they own that relationship, and yeah. and you're right. Like the middle, they are the middle person, and the middle person is always at risk. Uh, every year I've been in business, in my business, I've been told I'm going to be out of a job. Uh, first, it was because Monster existed, and then it was because LinkedIn exists. Um, and 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 it has changed my role. Like, it has changed my role. Um, we have to embrace that tech. I have to add value in different ways. You know, there's a reason I do a podcast. <laughs> there's, yep. a reason, there's a reason we have a networking platform for women in insure tech. Um, you know, these things are kind of adding value on top of kind of traditional services. But I think the carrier um, community, largely, I haven't seen a resistance to change. The people are, you know, for example, we talk about tech debt. The person that knows how much tech debt there is at an insured 
uh, insurance carrier is the CTO. They're yeah. not sitting there going, oh, we, we're unaware of our tech. Yeah. We're like, we just can't press a button and change it today because we yeah. have all the stuff. So I think culturally, it's been interesting to me. Um, is that something that you've seen? I don't see this big resistance. I just see a sort of lack of ability to, uh, maybe even lack of knowledge or lack of creativity to go in the right direction. Yeah. Well, so I think it's it's a bit of that. Um, and I think it's uh, I think you're right that they do realize, like, yeah, this is a problem. Um, but then it's it's the choice that comes in after that. So the choice to say, but we can't because, and we sort of like, I mean, it's it's like mansplaining. Like we mansplain to like, well, you don't understand. Yeah, uh, this is much harder than you think. So we can't just do that. It's like, well, okay, but these folks over here are doing that. So maybe mm-hmm. you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other side of it is even when there is an acceptance, I hear things from carers that are like, you know, yes, we made a decision, we're going to move ahead, but just so you understand, it's going to be at least 18 months before this even begins, because that's just the way we work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, for you to make that last statement, that's the choice. It doesn't just have to be the way I always say if someone says just watch out for what's about to come because it's a gross underrepresentation of of the real situation. Mm-hmm. And I think there are moments where we actually could do things differently. You know, maybe it's a, like you said, we can put uh, an outward facing CX layer on top of legacy tech. The tools are there. They're quite lightweight, easy to deploy. But actually for some t- CTOs or CIOs are like, that's too cheap. It must not be able to do it. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be $80 million. Mm. It could be 50,000, mm. um, you know, but it's like, well, clearly that's not good enough or there's something wrong with it. So we're not going to look at that. These are all choices of how we engage. And I think that's what's exciting is that's something. And that's part of what my work is about is I need to chip away at that. We all need to chip away at that. Mm. Uh, but it's not for impossibility. And I do think you're right. Generally, in the carrier space, not 100%, but there is an understanding and an acceptance. It's now for us to start to challenge how much we can and can't do or how fast we can do it. And COVID actually was a brilliant reminder because, you know, I share this in, in my first book. I talk about USAA, you know, this like $28 billion PNC business, roughly. Uh, at the beginning of 2020, they had scoped a project to begin at the end of the year, like Q3, to look at remote work. Uh, so nine months from now, we're going to start looking at this. They said it's going to be a kind of six to 12 month initiative to then make a recommendation for what they could or couldn't do and how they could or couldn't do it. So 18 months, roughly speaking, till they had some sense of the art of the possible and, and where to move ahead. But it would be like a 2022 implementation. Mm-hmm. And of course, March comes, COVID hits, and they weren't one of these like tomorrow morning, we're all remote. It took them five days. But it took them five days where they said it was going to be 18 months before they even had a sense of the answer. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that was like, yes, it was hard. People burnt out. And, and I'm expanding this out to every one of these Herculean, you know, super fast efforts. It might have been done with a bit of duct tape and hamster wheels and whatever else. But we did things super rapidly that allowed us to keep processing business and handling claims and, and what have you. Um, I don't want us to forget that. So now the question is, how can we do these things in more sustainable ways so that people aren't burning out um, or we're not, you know, just layering on all of this disparate tech and and it's barely standing up anymore, but we can't just fall back and they're like, yeah, you know, that's, we'll put that on the two-year horizon and we'll investigate it for a year and a half. It's like, that's not the world anymore and it doesn't have to be your reality. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a, 
choose your own adventure kind of shift yeah, that I think is in front of us. The pandemic did a really interesting thing for large companies because that that that's the perfect example that 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 can we work from home. It's creating actually an environment of entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship yeah. is, you know, you have to make decisions, you have to make them quickly, you have to be able to change, you have to be able to adapt. Um, big companies don't have to do that most of the time. Yeah. yeah. When you actually put those, uh, you know, those parameters in, what's fascinating is how well everyone rose to the occasion. Yeah. And and good enough is is good enough but you know it's at a certain stage you know it doesn't mean that you kind of that's that's the goal but you know one of my things is that I've, I've had various businesses um not and they're not all uh particularly you know i've owned a shop and owned a retail you know brand and and that's not on the linkedin page but yeah so friends will go oh i need to, i want to start this business and i you know the, the answer is always just start it's just like yeah. just start just go oh it's not going to be perfect if you wait for it to perfect you'll never do it and so right. like the kind of rollouts um of anything in insurance you know and i worked in insurance there's this big kind of conversation about this new claims technology and it took forever to roll out and when it rolled out it was really bad yeah. but if they rolled it out in a couple of months and then this is bad let's change it you know all of that time could have been spent getting it right right but it was trying to get it perfect ahead of time um yeah. have talking about your work um what's changed in terms of what people are interested in because you're there to support them through change right and, yeah. and advise yeah you started three years ago I'm interested to see the kind of journey of what conversations you're having then to what, what your conversations yeah. um so it, it, I've actually been reflecting on this lately um because I've noticed a difference in the outreach I get for speaking and and other other things mm. um I think early days in my work it was a lot more about something more point specific and tactical maybe the wrong word but it was like we're struggling with this what do we do about it you know do some analysis, give us a recommendation, come in and speak to us about these kinds of things in this particular area. And like, that's all fine. Um, what I'm finding now is people are really curious for challenge. So, you know, come and speak to our board about what's changing in our space or around our space that wouldn't necessarily be a one-to-one -one analog here. But like I, I spoke at a board meeting for a workers' compensation carrier and they wanted to know, you know, what are what are some early brewing things changing in workers' comp? And I said, you know, I, so I gave them a few things there. I said, but I want you to be aware of this thing that's happening over here. It's not directly relevant to your business. And we can talk about, you know, why that is and why it isn't. But I want you to see the shift in the dynamic and what it means to that legacy area, because there's actually things that could happen similarly in workers' comp. And I want you aware of that because you should all be curious and think about it. And I see people eating that up now. Mm -hmm. um, I've done some some talks for a particular core system provider at some of their client events, and um, they were really, really clear. They're like, we want things that people may not agree with. We want things that people have a feeling about one way or the other, and they're willing to engage with. Because if nothing else, even if they come to the same answer they have today, that like, oh, no, this is never going to happen, at least they've challenged their thinking to engage in it and to wonder, you know, what if, or what would we need if, and that's sort of how I position a lot of these things is let's suspend disbelief for just a moment. Mm -hmm. Cause you could be totally against this and say it won't play out and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But what if it did, what are things you would need to have 
from an enablement standpoint, from a capability standpoint to respond to that. And then ask yourself, should we be investing in those things anyway? And that was sort of the idea with that comp carrier is like, this may never play out for you and that's fine. But if it did, what would you need to respond to that? And if something similar were to happen, would those same enablers pay dividends? And so that's the question you should ask yourself is, are we investing in the right kind of things for the potential threats and opportunities that hit us? And I've seen, especially this year, much more engagement in like, can you challenge us? Can you tell us about things that may, you know, may make most of us put our head in the sand or be like, yeah, that's ridiculous. And it's fine. It may be. Um, but if we're not thinking about these things, that sort of exercise, it forces us to broaden our perspective a bit. Um, we're probably going to end up missing something that was right in front of us otherwise. So that's, that's different. And I, I prefer that. I don't like giving people specific recommendations on like, you need this tech or this solution provider or what have you. And sometimes people get frustrated with me that I don't tell them like, no sign with the, these folks. And there's a right answer for every RFP and that's fine. But like, that's not what we should be engaging in. That's what your RFP process is for. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your values, your culture, your thinking, your challenge, because that's the stuff that will ultimately lead you to success or failure. Um, and I've seen more um, happiness to engage in that and request for that in the past year or so. Isn't that, I th I was just smiling when you were sort of talking through because all I could think about, you know, I'm a big proponent of having personal therapy. I, I, I have therapy every week. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. It's, it's, the, it's the mental um, personal trainer, you know, that's, that's the yeah, way yeah. I've always looked at it. And as you're doing that, I'm thinking most of the time, Mine's about, it's about challenging my thought process. It's about challenging what I believe about the world. Um, and the point is, the, the, my my sort of therapist always says, well, I'm never here to give you answers, like a specific yeah. answers that you have to work it on your own. I was like, you're basically doing, Brian, you're doing business therapy with these people. You're going, yeah. like, look, all we can do is challenge your thinking. Um, yeah. Because they got, you, you can't, being prescriptive never works. Um it, it, everyone's got to be on board you know the, one of the things that i see which is still challenging i was you know I, there's a very large american insurer that i've done some work for they invest in lots of funds and the reason they invest in funds is, is they, they're very transparent they're, we want to see all the new tech we want to see all the new ideas we want to have a, a, a an awareness of that and that's the easiest way for us to see it but then interestingly it's controlled by a very small team so it has no visibility into the broader business. And, and, and my argument, I mean, is, you know, what do I know about running a multinational tens of thousands of person business? But I said, that is kind of meaningless. If, if, if it's not being made aware. So let's say you're looking at claims tech. If your global claims director isn't seeing that. Yeah. You know, what, what, yeah. what, what, what impact does it actually have? So uh, it's interesting to hear that you're having those conversations at, at a sort of more expanded level and I think generally I'm seeing that I'm seeing initiatives supported more by senior uh c-suite execs yeah but it's still it's, yeah it's still very senior though yeah um, it's rare you know I I did I did a talk at the beginning of 2022 for carrier and they asked me to do it twice once for their senior leadership team plus like director so it's about 30 people so definitely more than you know the c-suite mm -hmm. but then they had me do it later in the day for like 90 people and that was a sort of like mid-level manager group and that's the only time i've seen that happen mm -hmm. where it was like we actually need everyone talking about it it's like yeah and if you're looking at a solution to invest in or otherwise 
why why don't you have you know line adjusters and underwriters in those meetings because they're the ones who would actually be customers or users of this or yeah. they're the ones who are at the coal face with the customers or the brokers or whoever to understand whether like is that a problem or is that just some tech yeah you know and like in, engage them in that and the dividends that pays for what they then are able to do for all the people around them mm-hmm. um I, I used to bring adjusters with me to you know to sit with some of the startups and it was like all right we're going to a we work for the first time and have you ever seen like you know the kombucha tap and whatever like it sounds silly but actually it's just getting them out of the context they're in seeing something totally different with people who don't come from their background get mm-hmm. them to engage in it um, you may learn something about that solution, but you may learn more about the person that you just brought in. Do you, um, shifting gears slightly, I, yeah. I want to give you, so what we both sort of, sort of said that we're reflecting on is we're seeing a lot more discrete solutions, right, that are working with the industry. So that's that's a trend I think is going to continue. Do you think the biggest insure techs, as we define them, are yet to come? Like, I feel like we're building with all these discrete insure techs, the blueprint of the modern insurer is like yeah. happening in front of our eyes. Is there, do you think there'll be that, that huge player that comes in that really gets all this right? Yeah. Or, or am I just slightly deluded? <laughs> yeah, like is there an Aviva 2.0 brewing or, or yeah. State Farm? Yeah, yeah, Um, Well, this is one of those moments we get to make a prediction and hopefully no one ever, well, hopefully anyone listening, like it'll be long since retired, hopefully yeah. still alive before any of this would have. <laughs> out. I, I mean, I think this is a case of, um, I honestly have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, there's other industries where we could have done the same thing and been dead wrong. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mentioned the music industry, there's no new record label that has suddenly become, you know, the likes of of a Sony or BMG, maybe that's the same company, I don't even know now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's there's been consolidation, but you haven't seen a true startup that has risen to the top of a major um, you look in the auto industry, let's rewind 15, 20 years, whatever it was, is there going to be a startup car company that, you know, rises to preeminence? Absolutely not. The barriers entry, the fixed costs. And now we have the most valuable car company by a factor of many multiples was a startup. Um, you know, Tesla's every time I check the, how much, how many of the next public car makers is Tesla worth more than every time I look, it's another one. So mm-hmm. like, they six eight months ago it was like nine companies it's, it's 13 last time i looked wow. and, and so like um their their value advantage is increasing so they're getting better at the value game not worse mm-hmm. uh would anyone have said that 20 years ago probably not mm-hmm. um do i think rivian or lucid are the next ones probably not but i don't know and so it's, i think it's really hard to make a prediction like that reasonably yeah. um because we don't know what will change, like Amazon, I mean, just selling books, and then they added like outdoor furniture was their first product expansion. You're like, these people are idiots. Like, what are they? This makes <laughs> no sense. And they're losing so much money, and they're all going to die. Yeah. Booking Holdings, I just saw like they had a great quarter. Um, you know, their their component businesses in the dot-com days, 99, 2000, were huge money losers. And it's like, ah, that's, but look, look today. And so would we have made those right calls? I think we over-egged on some, we under-egged on others. So I don't know. I do think it's hard. And I think many of them are more likely to be acquired because of the scale of capital that exists in the legacy world. Um, I think that's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. I think for some of those acquisitions, it could 
it could create great possibility by the com combination. I think chances are it will stifle more possibility than it creates, mm -hmm. but I could be wrong on that too. And there may be one or two who do rise to preeminence. Um, I don't think the the ones that will do that are the ones we're seeing talked about the most right now, at least uh, one or two in particular I can think of. I, I don't know, like WeFox is, is another giant one. I don't know them well enough to know their underlying economics. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the sort of mega unicorns that we see, I haven't seen the right unit economics in the pure underwriting sense to suggest that like that is going to be the next Aviva. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're so many years on, hundreds of billions of assets. I have a very hard time seeing that because they're not accruing those assets as a, a viable carrier would need to. And they're mm -hmm. carriers now. They're not just MGAs. Um, yeah. So I don't know. So yeah. my, my answer is like, don't call me out either way because I don't know. <laughs> I I think your your music industry analogy was or or uh, observation was probably the closest to how I think about it. That if you look at the disruption in the music industry that happened to the labels, it wasn't that there was another label. It was just the distribution of music changed. Right. And so in insurance, it's, it's that seems the most likely threat is that actually just the way that people purchase or engage with insurance is fundamentally changed. Yeah. Um, embedded is obviously, um, we joked before we came on that, you know, if I had to talk about embedded again, I might go slightly mad. But but the reason it's so exciting as a proposition is because of the way that we currently, it, it, it challenges how we currently buy insurance. Yeah. But, Having said that, the one thing I wanted to see was the data on how much, you know, I, I spoke to someone that said they'd invested in like four embedded plays and they said like two of them were making any money at all yeah. um, and only one of them was profitable. Um, how many people are actually buying via embedded solutions currently? Yeah. Uh, but it makes sense. It, it, it's one of those that makes sense, but I, I still don't think is that, uh, and bear in mind, what we do for a living, talk about it all the time. I still don't buy anything for an embedded model because um, yeah. I don't trust it. I'm like, I'm probably overpaying because every time I look at an embedded solution, I'm usually overpaying. I can usually get it cheaper by going somewhere else. So, you know, I did this with mobile phone just recently. They tried to sell me some embedded mobile phone insurance. Yeah, Travel insurance is exactly yeah. the same, you know, so. But it's the, it's the cost of the the process of looking for yourself so if the travel insurance is 23 pounds and you could get it for 19 yourself it's like yeah but i gotta re-enter yeah. like so that's the choice that is what's convenience worth yes um, and you find actually in travel insurance the embedded offering does so much better yeah. than the standalone ever did um yeah. but but maybe you could get it through your your credit card exactly. um so then and that's i don't buy it because i know i've got it if i use you know card x and so i don't i don't need to spend or worry about it yeah yeah so i think but i but I, th I see the true disruption the true kind of change in evolution is rather than i think we'll see a new carrier i think we'll see loads of new carriers but whether they're any better i think the carriers have got very very good at what they do um yeah. they can just get better at it and maybe the rise more of carriers acting like almost like a hedge fund and say right we've got this pot of capacity and yeah. we're distribute it um we've already seen people like accelerant come in with that's quite an interesting model yes yeah um, and 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 i think we'll just see more players like that um yeah. 
So yeah, interesting. Um, well, I'm really conscious of time and I don't want to overstate our welcome. Uh, I appreciate that I've gone completely off script and asked you hardly any of the questions that I pre-agreed to ask you. Um, I hated the questions anyway, so this worked, no. <laughs> it was a good conversation though. Um, but Brian, I, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of talk about what's, what's coming up for you. Um, are you doing any speaking engagements? What's the best way to people to reach out to you? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's always new ideas that flash into my head. And then I'm really lucky that I've gotten great opportunities to share them with people. Um, I'm, I think I'm recovering from being on the road a bit. So there's nothing like pressing right now. Um, but I'm sure that'll pick up again, starting, well, I know, starting in January. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've got all these signs behind me that the easiest way for people to engage in what I put out there other than LinkedIn, which is how you and I connected, um, is at future-of-insurance.com. And I try to put from a thought leadership standpoint, I try to like bang everything in there, the podcast, the books, papers that I put out. And I try to get as much of it out for free. Obviously the books aren't. Um, if you have a like a Kindle Select subscription, I think they're free. But um, otherwise, like my intention is just to spark the industry thinking and, and engaging in this stuff. So there is a lot you can consume and I hope people do. And by the way, I hope you disagree with me or challenge or think of something else. And reach out about it. You know, people hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever. Um, as long as I'm still on Twitter, which I don't know how much longer that'll be, but at least for today, I am. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm anti cesspool generally, so we need to see how this all plays out. But um, yeah, engage. You know, let's talk about it. I, th I think you're allowed on Twitter as long as you're not rude about Mr. Musk. Uh, otherwise, you're all yeah. Fine. That's true. Or yeah. pretending to be him. That's uh, apparently that's yeah, how you get banned. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen a man with so much money be so sensitive. Um, it's quite I've seen that a couple of times, but yeah, he might be. <laughs> well, not quite as much money, you know. Yes. Yeah, right. No one like that. Yeah. Surely with that much money, you can build a moat around your ego, but uh, yeah. it's seemingly not. Um, Brian, thank you so much. It's been a really enjoyable conversation um, and, uh, and I'm glad we got the chance to do this. So, so thank you so much for your time. Yes, good fun. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Brian.